It is a distinct honor for me to be with you and to share the word, the word that is expression of God behind the word. When I approach scriptures, I have in mind that God is behind firstness. He comes in the word as secondness. And I have to interpret the word but seeing God. He said, it's through the word that I know about God, about Jesus, about the Holy Spirit. But I went through the word and touch God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit is different. To know about Jesus is one thing. To know him is another. And I hope that he comes through his word, his spirit among us today. Especially because he says, that he would do something new compared to all the covenants he did from the beginning. He made a covenant with Adam before sin, another after sin, then with Noah, then with Abraham, then with the whole nation of Israel, then with David, but finally gave the last covenant we call the new covenant. And I take that as a basis for everything we said this afternoon, this morning, in a way that the new covenant becomes a paradigm, the model for relationships of intimate nature. If you follow with me the book of Hebrews or the letter to the Hebrews, chapter 8, verse 9 on, or verse 8, the time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they did not remain faithful to my covenant, and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant that I will make with them, with the house of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I will put my loss into their minds, and I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor, or a man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness, and I will remember their sins no more." By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete, and what is obsolete and agent will soon disappear. Father, give us knowledge, even more insight, and even more wisdom to understand your word, to digest it, to apprehend it, chew on it, and nourish ourselves because we shall not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from your mouth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. With Valentine's Day coming, we are all conscious about doing something for those who we love, expect something from those who loved us, and we give gifts, and especially chocolates, and red roses, and cards, and all that. But I hope that for us as believers, this season 
imprints in us the quality of love exemplified by the Father in Jesus through the Holy Spirit. His love pour in our hearts, transforming us and also giving us an example, concrete example in the Word, in the Spirit, in the person of Jesus. So how to establish and renew marital stability and satisfaction? As Paul just said, our pastor, it's not just for married people that we preach. It's for all relationships of intimate nature, including the church, fellowship. So singles could have a stress inoculation training today. What is stress inoculation? You debug the bug, inject the bug, develop antibugs against the real bug. So arm yourself with the thought that you may also suffer. (laughs) Because Paul said that, for you that are single, it would be good to remain aside. But if you marry, there's no hardship. But I warn you, affliction of the flesh you will have. It's a realistic shot that you develop antibodies. But it's like an athlete that trains, or an alpine skier that goes mogul skiing. Oh, that the climber that climbs mountain, and you ask, why do you do that? And it's because it's there. So we want to be challenged. And when you're challenged to the uttermost degree, and you enjoy it or so, adrenaline flows through your veins, and you actually enjoy marriage, enjoy relationships, have satisfaction. Because this is the original design that God had for humankind. God designed marriage. God orchestrated that, not as a bricklayer or as a mechanic fixing things, but as an architect. The difference between a mechanic or a bricklayer, uh, an engineer, architect, is that you see the whole configuration before you put the first screw, before you put the first brick. Before the foundation of the world, God had these things in mind on how to form a people for himself and exemplified in a relationship called marriage. Covenants are binding elements. Covenants are the basis of what we talk about unions between people that are going to follow in God's will. The Hebrew buried to part to cut, the Akkadian buried of feather link between, give us this notion about the Hittites way back 2,000 plus year before Christ, of strong binding contracts between two parts with no previous blood relations. Dr. Klein, who used to teach at Gordon Kama before he went with the Lord, compared these to the old covenant found in scriptures. In Deuteronomy chapter one, you have a preamble, then a historical prologue, then stipulations in the covenant, then documented clauses in the covenant, a list of witnessing gods, sanctions and consequences, blessings and curses, and finally you take an animal and split the animal in half, put the two parts, and you go through those with a solemn oath. So I will be part if I don't fulfill the terms of my covenant with you. A bit drastic. But imagine planning your wedding and you tell the designer of all the stuff, I want a big bull cut in half and the bleeding parts on the sides 
and I will go as a bride, and he will go as a husband with this Solomon. So I will be split if I do anything to break my covenant with you. That will really impress in you what a covenant is all about. We romanticize a lot of this thing, and we take it lightly, and we spend $50,000 in hoopla that then results in 50% of fiascos in America. If you would do the covenants of all, perhaps you have a different mindset when you come to it. Well, God did covenants with Adam before sinning and after sinning. When God creates man, he says, I will make it to my image and, you know, likeness, but he's not good for him to be alone. So he makes Eve into his image also. When God says, let Adam, my steward, he's not the owner, I'm the owner of all the universe, and especially the earth, the things of the earth, the animals of the earth, the gold and silver of the earth, everything is God's. So he puts man to be a steward, a manager of his property. So in that, he parades all the animals before Adam to call them by name. What is to call by name is to observe reality, have a hunch, develop a hypothesis, test the hypothesis, revise the hunch, keep much more data collection, and finally come with something that you call a definition or a label that is the abstract quality of the structure, the functions, the relational aspects of this entity, so you call it by name. So to call by name is to define, to exercise jurisdiction. Greater is the definer than the define. And Adam began to observe everything. He sees a red little thing that is moving, eats green stuff and gives white stuff and hmm, it's a cow. You know, so in that sense he begins to call things by name and as the, he calls everything by name, finally a person comes. A person that was created when he was asleep, so he had no clue who she was. I can only imagine that if he was awake he would give his opinion to God and say, God, could you extend a bit here or less here and more here and flowing hair? And God says, shut him down and let's create Eve. Present that to him. Take it or leave it. <laughs> no choice on the matter. See, we romanticize weddings so much. When my kids were growing, I said to them, I like to arrange marriages for you. He said, no, Dad, no, Dad. I said, what's wrong? I'm a psychologist. I will give them Wesley Intelligence Scale, the MMPI, the Rorschach, the TAT, all the testing in the world to see how smart they are, how smart they are, and how emotionally fit they are. I'm a practical guy. I will look into checking account and, you know, what they have to offer, you know. <laughs> I'm a spiritual man as a pastor. So I want to see the spiritual stature, so... I'm an artist, actually, I paint, I draw, and all that, I'm a musician. So I know about aesthetics. I will choose something that you will actually like. I'm a social guy, so I want to see their emotional intelligence and the relatedness, you know, the capacity to... So when you have the physical, the social, the intellectual, the emotional, the spiritual, and everything else compounded, what's wrong with that? That's how parents think about how to find somebody for your kids. Say, no, that choice is everything. Okay, go and do your own mistakes. Anyhow. <laughs> Opinionated parents as we are, so. 
but they somehow survive. God made a covenant with Adam when he presents Eve, by the way, is the only entity that comes before him and he could not define. Why? Because he says, she's like me. Ish, Isha in Hebrew. You know? Just like me. So he did not define her. Why? Because when you define something, you exert jurisdiction over the defined. You control the defined. When did, call, when did he call his name? Her name, Eve, was in chapter 3, after sin. And she was subject to the origin of her life, as he was subject to dust, as the serpent was subject to the origin, as the curse came. But guess what? It's the seed of the woman that will redeem humankind, and the virgin bore a son. And we call him Emmanuel, God with us. So in Christ, women are redeemed at the same level that men are. In an egalitarian standing before God as heirs and co-heirs of Jesus Christ. One day a woman came to Jesus and said, How blessed is the womb that brought you and the breast that you were nourished upon. What a strange salutation. Do you greet like that in this church or something? But why? Because every woman wanted to be the mother of the Messiah. So finally it came. You know what Jesus said? More blessed is a person that listens to the word and obeys my word. He redefined womanhood as somebody that obeys the dictum of God and follows his will. Isn't that wonderful? He made a covenant in which Adam relates to God as a child before Eve is on the scene. Eve relates to God as a child before she's a woman of you know, marriageable qualities to Adam. So before husbands or wives is children of God. And at the end, when Christ gives the kingdom to the Father, 1 Corinthians 15, all of us will be children of God with a big brother, Jesus Christ, upon us. We don't go like Mormons and others as married couples and whole bunch with dogs and cats to heaven. We go as children of God, in a new economy that we have yet to discover how that will be. Anyhow, after they sinned, they broke the covenant with God and with each other because, you know, we're the first couple on earth. And they felt that they opened their eyes and they saw themselves naked. And lo and behold, the first thing is to make, they were the first fashion designers on planet earth. And they put themselves fig leaves to cover their inadequacies. But he asked the question, why would they cover up if there's the only couple on earth? Do you do that in your you know, private domains? That's a profound theological statement that sin has robbed us the pristine qualities of finding one another acceptable, validated in the presence of each other because we feel that we are not okay enough in the most beautiful, intimate relationships. Still the anxiety of being known as we are obliges us to put facades and fig leaves and excuses. Why? Because the basic anxiety in all human beings is if you truly know me, you will not like me as much. So let me cover up and put a facade. But God who sees them from dandruff to calluses 
He says, that's not enough. Let me kill an animal and cover you with skin. And according to Dr. Klein, a friend of mine that is with the Lord, but taught at Gordon Cowell, he killed an animal and covered both with the same skin because it's not in plural, but in singular in Hebrew. So by covering them with the same skin, he ratified the covenant. Why? Because the first covenant, although there's no such a thing about the treasure Hittite kind of covenants of the days of Abraham, we know that somehow they have a verbia solemnia, a solemn vow that read like this, you are bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. We are bounded together in the same accord. This is how the Israelite crowned David as a king and recognized their covenant with him saying, you are bones of our bones and flesh of our flesh. So Adam and Eve now are restored to fellowship with God and to one another by being covered by God. And that cover is the propitiatory, oh, God covering sin in order to redeem us from our fallen condition. Now Adam and Eve are restored to fellowship with God with a covering of skins by God himself. So it's renewed the covenant. So you have covenants with Adam and Eve, with Noah, with Abraham, with David. But the old covenant is the one that we focus on because Moses is the giver of the law. Based on love and justice became that joke or yoke about the people of Israel that would not take themselves seriously or God and began to kind of depart from him. And the law was like a mirror to show them the inadequacies that everybody was sinful in the eyes of God and condemned by the same law was given for life and for freedom. The old covenant was binding. The old covenant was bilateral. If you, then I. If you obey, I'll bless you. If you disobey, I will curse you. If you obey, milk and honey dripping all over the place. If you disobey, locusts, famine, pestilence, or so. So it was a conditional contract, a conditional covenant in which you have to be very much obliged by many rules. Ten commandments were not enough for the Pharisees. They pile up 613 on top of Moses. If Ten Commandments sent you to hell if you don't receive them well and oblige to yourself to believe them and obey them, where would you end up with 613? What chances you have to be okay with God? That's the fallacy of legalistic church that keep on adding on. When I was growing up in Argentina, my church had 614 commandments. They, they topped the Pharisees or something. Everything was sinful. Everything. I had to ask, what is not sinful today that I could enjoy? <laughs> and some couples enter a covenant like an old covenant in which this for that, I scratch your back, you scratch mine, you hit me, I'll hit you, an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Old covenant transactions due to human nature. Yet it became a heavy yoke, bilateral, conditional, reactive, retaliatory, but also was a shadow, a pedagogos, a teacher, leading us to Christ, a preamble of things to come. And this is what has come, what we just read. A new covenant in which God says, I will, I will, I will. In other terms, God is unilateral. God is unconditional. God is proactive. God is full of grace, full of mercy, empowering us to do his will and giving us the law into our hearts and minds so we could follow his dictum. 
In that sense, this is what we learn from God, that we have a covenant with one another in which God presides over us, and we got married in the presence of a living God. So it's not so easy to disband or to take it lightly or to trivialize something that God declared covenantal before his eyes. And actually, we don't own. Sometimes I introduce Francis, this is my wife. And actually, I'm lying. She's not my wife. So who is she? She's a person that in freedom and dignity has chosen to live with me in a covenantal aspect of marriage sanctioned by God in the presence of many witnesses to whom I shall account of everything I have done towards her all the days of my life until Christ comes. That's kind of a long introduction. <laughs> so I take a shortcut, says my wife, but I know, God knows, and she knows that it's not a property of mine. I didn't have a purchase and sales agreement before God. <laughs> It's still his, and I have to give an account to God of how I treated him. It's on my best interest to behave, because you store M&Ms in a place that would never melt. There are other places they will melt in no time. So try to store up for eternity, whatever you do to your husband, to your wife, because God, the owner of both, is watching your stewardship, your administration. And by the way, all relationships, how you treat your kids, how your kids treat your parents, is registered by the Lord. And in that sense, you will get rewards according to how you manage your life before the presence of the living God. So, going back to marriage, as an institution created by God, that should be stable and satisfactory. Perhaps we emphasize too much stability. We preach against divorce, against separation, and that's right. Jesus put things in perspective when he taught about marriage also. So we try to be stable. But let me say, imagine I draw a line, a vertical line, an axis. You have high stability, low stability, and then another one across, high satisfaction, low satisfaction. Where would you like to be? The four possibilities. Low stability, low satisfaction, those marriages don't last a year. You get out. As a psychologist, I had a couple that the wife calls me from Logan Airport and says to me, Dr. Polishchuk, we got married last night. I'm about to go to a honeymoon, but I'm afraid I made a mistake. Can you tell me what to do? <laughs> well, it's terrible, but people don't think too much. They don't count the coins before they have a dialogue with these kids here. <laughs> you have to count the coins before you build your tower. You have to go into these very much advised with all your piston going, with all the players in the team, you know, running. Count the coin before you get married or so. Anyhow, low stability, low satisfaction, they don't last. High stability, high satisfaction is where we want to be, right? It's not just stable, but satisfying. But you have other options. You have high satisfaction, low stability. That belongs to the West Coast. 
An example, Liz Taylor beat the Samaritan woman by two. Swinging, swapping or so, because you don't care for stability, you care for satisfaction. I would not name other dignitaries that swing and swap or so. They don't care for stability, they just go for satisfaction. But there's a fourth one that I'm afraid to say many Christian couples reside. High stability, low satisfaction. What began with palm ceremony, hoopla, ends up in almost like a morbid, somber tone, like a requiem, not a wedding song. I have a couple of friends whose business is always in ruins. They happen to be archaeologists. And they're digging to find things. Like in Megiddo, 23 layers of strata of people that wiped each other out. And they were alive and well. 23 of these Nations that wiped one another. You had to dig to find what they looked like, what they had, or whatever. And in truth, as a psychologist, sometimes what I do as a therapist is uh, dig, like an archaeologist digging to see what is left in this couple that is worth redeeming. What is there in the beginning of their lives or so. At the beginning, flowers and songs, you know. At the beginning, you know, poetry or so, and opening doors and this muddy thing, you, you know, take your coat and say, my princess, I don't want you to dirty your shoes or so. A few years later, says, jump, what you wait? <laughs> Slam the door, the flat noses are there, you know. <laughs> Collect all the flowers for the funeral. Why waste time before, you know? Yeah. Have them all together once. The law is like a yoke on Israelites, and marriage is compared to a yoke. What is a yoke? My father used to have a farm in Argentina. He would put two oxen and a beam on top of them and tie them. One stop, the other has to stop. One turns, the other has to turn. And the Bible says, it's good for a man to bear the yoke of his youth, meaning marry young. <laughs> and be tied up. And a lot of people, I had a person says, in my dreams, I feel like an Italian stallion galloping all over the prairies. I wake up and I have this ox with a beam, you know, tied to me. And I feel stuck. And I wish that one of us dies, you know. So sad, you know. We need renewal, we need restoration, we need a fresh breath of air, so. But that's the condition of a lot of people, have high stability, but low satisfaction. We put up with each other until Christ comes, you know. We do our best. We ask prayer in all the men, pray for my husband, pray for my wife, because they make my life unbearable. Yeah, but that's Christian life in so many cases. What's so wrong that we preach only stability? Why don't we preach more satisfaction? Or is that too much of a hedonistic spirit? Enjoy the wife of your youth. That's biblical, you know. And in that sense, we have to renew our covenants, renew our meetings, so we have high satisfaction as much as high stability. I just remind people, if it is a question of stability only, heaven and hell are very stable. 
When I'll be there 10,000 years, bright shining like the sun, you could recompose the sun. When I'll be there 10,000 years, scorching like the sun. Yeah. Amazing disgrace, how miserable I am. Yeah. So it's two songs here, one in heaven, one on hell, because both are very stable. So what is the difference between heaven and hell? Satisfaction. So please, increase the level of satisfaction in your life, in your marriage, so you will survive and you will be stable and satisfied. So how would you go for that? Let me propose something. 1990, I published an article in the Judson Journal of Theology about a new covenant as a paradigm for human relations. You know, and I worked out 25 years after that, finally published that book. But for me, the new covenant is a model, a paradigm for human relationships of optimal nature. God knows what he has created. God knows how it functions. God has left instructions in the package so we could open the package and enjoy the whole gift of God. God left instructions for us. And the new covenant is the sum total of his instruction. What is all about the new covenant? The old covenant was something that due to human failure, God invalidated and they could not be saved by the law. So he gave a new covenant, but this time would not rely on this for that uh, bilateral conditional arrangement. God will make a unilateral, unconditional, proactive arrangement. What is that? I will put my laws. I will write them upon your mind. I will forgive your sins. I will remember. Where are you? Nowhere to be seen. You're dead in trespasses and sins. You have no clue what's hitting you when God hits you. Don't say, because I believe, because even that is a gift from God. <laughs> For grace, grace has been saved, and this is not yours. It's a gift from God through the gospel. When you believe, there's no credit in the believer. The credit is on God who did all the work through Jesus Christ, who died, resurrected, ascended, and intercedes for us. So God says, I will put, like an architect, he established this from the foundation of the world. The Bible says that Christ was impaled or crucified before the foundation of the world. Nothing surprises God. I don't think that God creates Adam and Eve and leaves them, you know, roaming the planet in the garden, doing his finger and saying, I hope they don't sin, I hope they don't sin. He already provided for them whatever they will do. And all the generations, it's through the seed of the woman that Christ would come in the Virgin Mary to be our savior. God is an architect and he says, I will make this plan. I will fulfill this. I will make a covenant. I will you know, put my loss into your heart. No longer tablets of stone. Why? Because the first tablets written by the finger of God, given to Moses, his face is shining, comes down. And he sees having a party. Israel is having a party. They forgot. And the dumbest excuse, well, we put all the Jews, and this is where they came. <laughs> okay. <laughs> if you believe that, I can sell you the obelisk in Washington. You know. So in that sense, the whole notion is that God says, this is not working or so. And Moses, when they saw the people, what did he do with the tablets? 
He smashed them. I got to say, uh-huh, go back 40 days, 40 nights. And this time you prepare two tablets and come up with a second version of the law. And you know what God says to Moses? This time, put it in the box, in the Ark of the Covenant. Why? Because you could break it again. <laughs> and actually, the Ark was a symbol of Jesus Christ, who had the manna, the rod of almond as a priesthood, you know, a showmanship of his work, and the tablets that only he kept the law. No one else. In that sense, we know that the law could not save. But the new covenant, God says, I will, I will. So God is proactive. Husbands and wives, be proactive. Be Christ-like, God-like. What is to be proactive? Well, say, did you fix the pipe? Did you fix the pipe? Okay, we'll fix the pipe. That's a reactive thing. Before your wife complained, fix the pipes, you know. Where shall we go on vacation? I don't know. What do you think? I don't know. Come on, buy all the stuff. Plan ahead or so. Surprise a wife with gifts that she doesn't even know what's hitting her. There was a guy that never did anything for his wife. Never. So she had to say, come on. You know, John does this for his wife. Peter does this for his wife. You know, James, you know, you don't do anything for me. What do you want? What do you want? There was something. Finally, begrudgingly, he goes, and bring something for her birthday because he forgot her birthday for the last 40 years. Now he bought something. So she comes with an envelope. <laughs> the first gift. She opens that crying. Opens that. Do you know what is inside the... What would you expect? A card for Nordstrom or, you know, Walmart, whatever your tastes are. <clears throat> so, what check? What please, uh, Dunkin' Donuts, you know, <laughs> voucher. No, this is a receipt for a plot of land in the cemetery. <laughs> well, I heard that you had to be proactive, think about the future of your person, act in, you know, so this is it. Yeah, well, but if he did nothing for her for 40 years, something means something. You have to reinforce whatever you have. You have to start from zero baseline. This is one notch above zero. So the next year comes, and he forgot again. <laughs> so she reminds him, hey, what's happened this year? I said, what? My birthday. So? You didn't give me anything. You know what he answered? You never used what I gave you last year. <laughs> Don't be reactive, be proactive, plan ahead. Jesus was so proactive that he says to Peter, Peter, Satan has asked me to shake you up, like, you know, the threshing floor. But I have already prayed for you so your faith would not falter. Can you imagine Jesus praying before you sin? He knows you, and he prays for you before you sin. On the sideline, I was always curious. If I was Peter, and he's my best friend, and he says, Pablo, Satan has asked me to really shake you up. I would say, what did you say? <laughs> I gave him permission. What? <laughs> what kind of friend are you? He knows. He kn I don't judge Jesus Christ. 
He's proactive. You know, seven people go back fishing. They even forgot the trade after three years of following him. And all of them renegades or so fish. All night caught no fish. And Jesus comes to the seashore and fries fish for them. And asks them, little children, do you have anything? No, we don't have. Who's this guy? You know, it's a side coach, you know. He's not playing with us. He's a coach on the side. Why don't you cast to the red or the right side? What do you have to lose? Cut. And they come with 153 fish. Somebody counted them. Perhaps Peter was a businessman. Had to categorize it kosher, non kosher, kosher, non kosher. So you had to count the fish. Anyhow, now he was you know, buying time. What shall I say? I promise not to. I would not deny. And I was a miserable person. Deny him or so. All of them renegades, apostates. If I was Jesus and see them, I would drill a hole with my power below the flotation line. And when they're making bubbles, perhaps I will listen to them. Jesus is not like me. Even if we are unfaithful, he remains faithful. That's a covenantal love. He fries fish. Because he promised, I will not have this supper with you until I come in the kingdom. But he didn't mention breakfast, so he was free to do so. So at some level, we have proactive initiative. Also, unilateral is not if you, then I. It's unilateral. Like in Abraham, God goes through the animals, not Abraham. So it's a unilateral covenant, meaning from me to you, whether you deserve it or not, whether you are dreaming about it or not. I do this on my own initiative. I'm not a masochist. I'm not a pushover. I'm not a codependent. I am a free person that in love imitates God and will bless you in spite of who you are, if you wish. Unilateral trust, imitating God, fostering better bilateral deals. Third, unconditional. If you, no, no, no. I will do with no conditions. Why? Are you nuts? No, I'm imitating God. Who did it unconditional. You know, Jesus heals 10 lepers knowing that one will come to say thanks. Would you heal the other nine? We are different. If I heal you, what would you do for me? Would you come to my church? Would you pay the tithe? Would you sing in the orchestra? Would you play the strings? What do you do? No, no. I heal you. Whatever you do with your healing is up to you. Jesus did not put conditions. Jesus loved unconditionally. In that sense, stances and moves that we have as husbands and wives or friends or parents or children should provoke to love and lead to better conditions. But we start with being unconditional. Fourth, grace. What is grace? If a beggar comes to my house, knocks at my door and says, would you have some bread? And I give him bread. Is that grace? He, he knocked. He worked. So I have to pay him. If that same person knocks at my doors, I open the door, he spits on me and kicks my shin and runs. And I run three blocks and tackle him and give him bread. That's grace. (laughs) That's grace. None of us knock at heaven's door. None of us resurrected Christ from the dead. None of us participated in any fashion in our salvation. Faith plus zero equals justification before God. That equation stands. Whatever you add on to faith, you have to diminish your faith because faith plus zero 
means justification before God. Grace, giving the other one they don't deserve. Sometimes we think, what does my husband deserve this year? My wife has been cranking all that. She doesn't deserve much, you know. Instead of going to Copley Square, we go to the Building 19. You know. <laughs> See what we can find for her, you know. So in that sense, it's not a question of deserving. Who of you, who, who deserved the grace of God? Who could qualify, you know? When Jesus came to find a bride, he didn't go to a disco dancing party in Jerusalem. He went to a cemetery and dug up a corpse. We were dead in trespasses and sins, metaphorically speaking, and he gave us life and then cleansed us and then embellish us, and then clothe it out with righteousness, and then prepares us for the last feast in Revelation chapter 22, you know. The new covenant is leading us to be God-like, imitators of God, walking in love, to be proactive, unilateral, unconditional, full of grace. But it's a second side to that coin, mercy. If grace is giving the other one what the other one doesn't deserve, mercy is not paying them what they could deserve. So we withhold your hands. Instead of chastising, coming with a guillotine, hang on, show mercy. Because God says with the same measure you measure one another, I will measure you at the last moment. In that sense, how to show mercy, not paying each other the way they may deserve. So you have five qualities, proactive, unilateral, unconditional, graceful, merciful, and then empowering. Empowering. Jesus says, you know that all the nations want to power over you, the kings and managers or whatever, they want to power over you. But among you will not be like that. You will empower one another. You will serve one another. You will reinforce one another. You push one another to higher heights or so. Empower. Those who believe in him, he gave them the power to become children of God. Jesus said, what to you Pharisees because you put burdens that you cannot carry with your fingers or so. They power over you with commandments. Do this, do that, do this, do that. Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, love one another as I have loved you. <laughs> Empowers us to do his will from within. So we don't follow God like robotics, but rather we follow God because we love him because he loved us first. An empowering love or so. So husband and wives decide this season to say, how can I empower my wife? How can I plan ahead? And I would do things that she would say, what's wrong with you? Did you fall off your bed today and crank your skull or what? No, I decided to leave the terms of a new covenant. Empowering. Leading to intimacy. What is intimacy? Removing all barriers, all fig leaves, all defense mechanisms, all justification, repression, suppression, reaction formation, rationalization, intellectualization, defense mechanism, blaming, projecting, and so on, and being as you are in the raw stand the risk of being accepted as you are. I love this show in New York. I love you, you're perfect, now change. <laughs> Accept first and then begin a process 
of change. Leading to intimacy means there is no barriers. God in the old covenant was not so reachable. You had to go through the door, through an altar with five offerings, to a fountain to wash your feet and hand, through a candlestick, through a table with bread, to an f- incense altar, and then it's a veil that shuts you. The last barrier of the Holy of Holies, in which the ark with manna, the rod of Halmon, tree that reverb, you know, and gave fruits overnight, and the tablets of the law, with cherubs looking at the propitiatory where the blood was given. Only once a year in Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, a holy priest, high priest, will go once a year, sprinkle with blood, and run away. It was a terrible thing to stand in the presence of God. But guess what? When Christ died, the veil of the temple was torn in two and opened the way to the Holy of Holies. And the author of Hebrews says, having such a new, open, living way and a high priest that has mercy on us, let us draw near and approach the throne of grace, the seat of mercy, the propitiatory, and this freedom to come where the Spirit is the Lord. You know, you sang a beautiful song. It's freedom to come and to enjoy the presence of God because there's no barriers. God says, my son paid for all. There's nothing that separates us. Let's turn the thing because it was broken from top to down, not by human hand, but by the will of God in the moment of Christ's death. Open the door for us to come through the new and living way, this is Hebrews chapter 10, to enter the presence of God. So do we have that freedom as husband and wife to come to our own inner sanctum, to our own private domain, to our hearts and minds, and to be disclosing or we still put veils between us, or facades, or defenses, or do we hide? Can we be open, sincere, confess our faults, restitute ourselves, and enjoy fellowship? This is a new covenant way of dealing with intimacy, with unveiled faces to be accepted and validated. Do you know why Moses put the veil? Paul has a pun on that. He says, Moses put a veil so people would not see when the glory of God fades away. Oh. Because when he comes on the mountain, his face is so brilliant, people say, you know, we can even look at you. So he put a veil. But also, what Paul takes as a side note, when you have a brilliant face, everybody says, ooh, ah, ooh, ah. When your face is not... Brilliant people say, "Who is this John Doe? Who's talking about? You know, you don't have power. So why don't you put a veil so people don't know if you have it or you have it? <laughs> so even if you don't have a head, put on a hat. Okay? So pretend. Paul says, "No, no. In the new covenant, we don't pretend. With unveiled faces, we behold the glory of God, and we are transformed from one degree of glory to the next by the Spirit of the Lord. Intimacy." then I will forgive their sins. Meaning that he compacted all the sins from Adam to the last one to exist and put them in one cup and offer that to Jesus in Gethsemane. Would you drink this cup? To the point that Jesus three times has to pray, please, could you revise your plan? Is there any way that I could save humankind? Perhaps through education, perhaps through, you know, pilgrimage, perhaps through, you know, chanting, perhaps in sitting in a lotus position and humming my way. You know, what can I do? No, no, there's no other way. You have to die at the cross and shed your blood. 
identify with sin. And he who knew no sin, he was made sin for us. I have a friend who only drinks Perrier. No other water will do it for him. Perrier. Imagine that my friend comes and I go to a puddle, a swamp, and scoop a cup in which things are floating around, amoebas, paramecians, all that stuff, and offer it to my friend who is used to Perrier only. Would he drink that? A very meager illustration of what Jesus has to drink that moment to be identified with your sin, my sins, and all the sins from Adam to the last one to exist compacted in one dense cup. And Jesus has to identify and drink it for us. He died. Don't you know that you died with him and were buried with him? How many of you know that Joseph of Arimathea buried you 2,000 years ago? Have you ever thought of that? You look at me strangely. You were buried by Joseph of Arimathea in a brand new sepulcher because you were buried with Christ. We call that vicarious identification. He embedded us with him and we died to sin. This is the meaning of baptism. We were baptized into his death and then we resurrected to live for him. In that sense, sins are forgiven. We have a new life. But God adds on something. I will remember no more. It's not that God is ancient of days and has Alzheimer's or dementia. He is developing a retroactive, retrograde memory oblation by choice. A voluntary retrograde amnesia that he chooses not to remember our sins or so. Husbands and wife, why do you say, you remember the 3rd of February when we were sitting in that restaurant and you really messed up things in time? And you remember the 3rd of December last year? And you remember, you know, we, rem- we keep account of evil, yes or not? God says, I will delete your sins. Sometimes, when I write, I make mistakes. I have two choices. One, strike over the mistake. Or, ah, oh, I love this little button in my computer. It says, delete. <coughs> delete. As if I never made an error. And that's, my friends, the difference between the Old Testament and the New. The Old Covenant and the New. The Old Covenant, all the blood of animals, cover sin. When John introduces Jesus, here's the Lamb of God who covers the sins of the world? No. This is the Lamb of God who takes away. He didn't come to strike over your sins, to cover them. He came to delete them. You understand that? The greatest news for today, this morning, it's still 11.55, is that your sins have been deleted in the presence of the most holy God. How could you, how could you miss that? One of your songs says, if your heavy burden is lifting, you will be dancing, but you know, I never saw anybody dancing today in spite of all your beautiful singing. Come on, you guys, you know, put some fire under the belly. In that sense, they will be. So the sins have been deleted. And finally, the 10 point. 
we renew our covenant. Renewal is the more. So in that sense, as God renews his covenantal terms with partners living in his sight, we renew our covenant among husbands and wives, parents and children and friends. So we have to do that. You realize that this is a different message from the first message, so you have to listen to both to get the whole picture or so. Uh, you have some podcasts that you could do that, actually. Anyhow, but my point to finish, because I'm long-winded this morning, is that somehow we have to exercise grace and mercy and forgiveness, a very key point. Couples that are not able to forgive, they're not able to sustain themselves in marriage or so. And forgiveness has three layers, events, processes, and structures. Forgiveness is not just an act, I forgive you. It's not just an event, you know. It engages processes of thinking, reasoning, perceptions, judgments, memories, attributions of meaning, ruminations, styles of thinking of bothersome nature, emotional stuff that eats up at us, conscious, purposeful, and inactive processes that say, I have counted all the coins And when I'm ready to have a steamroller and flatten you up, then I realize what I'm forgiving. Not before. Otherwise, it's denial, repression, suppression, whatever. But not true forgiveness. True forgiveness is costly. It costs Jesus, his blood, to forgive us. It will cost husbands and wives something. The death of their narcissistic ego. The humiliation of your retaliatory or revengeful spirit and crash it for the sake of a greater good. Why? Because that's the way God did it with us. Christ suffered the shame of the cross, a public display for you and me. What's wrong with us that we have to cover up so much and never confess our sins and never say, I'm sorry, and really come with humility as a process of cognitive, emotive, motivational, inactive nature. But even more than that, and I'm saying that because Peter came one day and says, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother? The Talmud, the Jewish customs, would say three times a day you forgive. The fourth, you get a baseball bat you know, and go at it. So Peter multiplies the second cheek, the second mile must be Two times three would be six. Uh, It's not a good number. Let's up the end. Seven times? And I guess that Peter was expecting, say, good boy, you learned your lesson. Look at the disciple. You know, Jesus said, no, Peter. Seventy times seven. Uh, Drop his jaws. What is seventy times seven? Means forgiveness is not an event. It's a process of ongoing nature. It goes on and on and on. Waves and waves will come and hit you with morbid thoughts, ruminations, revengeful spirit, you know, unfinished transactions. Sewers never stop. Wells run dry. Couples have to dig up new wells instead of tapping into a sewer system all the time. So in that sense, bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has grievance, forgive as the Lord forgave you. The Lord counted all the sins consciously. He was not a martyr. He was not a victim. He was a free agent that in a sunny day helping all his marbles together, human and divine marbles, he decided to die for us and shed his blood for us. 
Forgiveness is a conscious, deliberate, free act of the will, imitating God in Christ, that to dispense that in grace and mercy by a person who is a forgiver, an ontological, essential, structural level, your inner being, the core functions of who you are when nobody's looking at you, that is the forgiving person that then processes forgiveness and then the event of forgiveness that is displayed on top. Events, processes, structures of ontological, essential, core nature. Husbands and wives decide this Valentine's season to be a forgiver, to imitate God, to walk in love. And I did that before with you, because love is not abstract, it's not just in a card, but love is exemplified in Jesus. You know, I did that in the previous service, and I could do this even if we did that in a previous encounter with one another, in which if we read 1 Corinthians to finish, and say, love is patient, love is kind, love doesn't envy, love doesn't boast, love is not vain, love is not proud, that does not dishonor the other, love does not seek his own, love is not easily angered, love does not keep a record of wrong, does not delight in evil, not, but rather rejoices in truth. Love always protects, always trusts, love always perseveres, has no end. What if we substitute love with the person that incarnates, that epitomizes, that exudes love? God is love. Jesus is love. So let's read again. Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. Jesus doesn't envy. Jesus doesn't boast. How much? Is that okay so far? Jesus is not proud. Jesus does not dishonor the other. Jesus does not seek his own. Jesus is not easily angered, does not keep a record of wrongs, doesn't delight in evil, rejoices in truth. Jesus always protects, always trusts, always perseveres. But what if I change that? And in the presence of my wife, Frances, I read the passage and says, Pablo is patient. Pablo is kind. Pablo does not envy. Pablo doesn't boast. Pablo is not vain. Pablo is not proud. Pablo does not dishonor the other. Ask her what she thinks and feels for <laughs> Pablo doesn't seek his own. Pablo is not easily angered, especially in the store drive when people cut him off all the time. Does not keep a record of wrongs, you know. Pablo doesn't delight in evil. Pablo rejoices in the truth. Pablo always protects, always trusts, always persists. Pablo never ends. When I look at that and look at Francis, my first mirror, when I look at the mirror of the Word of God, I fall flat on my face and say, Lord, have mercy on me. How many of you look at yourself in the mirror before you came to this service? Come on. Did you? Why did you do that? You want to fix something in yourself, right? When you look at yourself in the mirror of God's Word, please notice what you need to change. Notice what you have to shape up and align with God. Let us pray. Father, this season of love that should be so concrete in our lives in the matters that you exemplify your love for us in Christ, give us these notions of the new covenant to be a mirror for our behaviors, our thoughts, our attitudes, our emotions.
towards one another in marriage, in family, in church relations. We ask all these things 